Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, we are here with you. Our names are Gabriel Hakoen and Sadie Carpenter. We're here. How are you doing today, Sadie? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I am back here in Portland, Oregon, in my childhood bedroom, recording a podcast episode right now with you, my best friend, who is a cold expert and a cold survivor. And we're talking about something very, very interesting to me today, which is J. Frank Norris, the big daddy of fundamentalism. This episode is absolutely incredible. Um, if you listened, if you missed last week's, I, of course, highly suggest you check it out. It's important context for this week. Uh, last week, I got to make a startling revelation on Mike, which is always fun. And this week, we're getting into the juicy, oh God, that's probably not the best word to use for this episode. Juicy is a couture sweatsuit, man. It's a, it's a, it's a velvet price. sweatsuit. No, it wasn't juice in the jar. It was alcohol in the jar. Uh, Uh, Jesus turned it into grape juice. It's actually brains in a jar full of lean is the... I would have liked the story more. Anyway, (laughs) we're talking about the down and dirty details of J. Frank Norris's 1926 murder trial. And we are going to be doing a little bit of our signature investigating on the brain in the jar story that started it all. We were so excited when we got the details of this story and we can't wait. Like this is an episode we've been waiting three years to make and 
We can't wait to share it with you guys today. Ah, I'm so excited. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. That's right. She is a cult expert and a cult survivor. And we talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's a few things that you can do to support us. Number one, you can go and you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where you will get access to extended and uncensored and ad free versions of most of our episodes. They also come out two days early. You can listen to them on Saturday. You can listen to them on Sunday while everyone else has to wait till Monday to listen to them. So if you, if, if you want to do that, if you want that to be you, you can subscribe to our Patreon. You can join our Facebook group and our subreddit. Both of those are called Eden Exodus. So it's facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus and uh, reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Also, we are talking about the brain in the jar today, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that specifically for these two episodes that we came out, we made special merch, and we came up with a new podcast uh, a logo design with the picture of the brain in the jar in it. So if you want to get that, you can head over to our Threadless shop, and the link to that is in the description. Yay. Uh, if you like the design, you can you can get it on a, a tote bag. You can get it on the mouse pad. You can get it on a phone case. You can get it on a shirt, whatever you want. If there's something that you want it on that we don't have it on, you can send me a message and I'll see if I can make that happen for you. Do you do you realize how if I bought all of the merch from our podcast that I wanted to buy, <laughs> how broke I would be? I would be like, we get them at like cost plus shipping and I would still be like, I have pretty much all of our designs on at least something, but I can't get all of the things that I want on all of the things that I want. And, and folks, I apologize if I sound, um, <laughs> off my rocker today. I'm just really tired. I'm genuinely happy to be here and excited about this episode, but my brain is making weird connections because of sleep deprivation. I, I guess we need to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. Um, we have three I gave it all to your patrons. Your names are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you so much to our I gave it all to your patrons. And we have many Faith Promise missions to your patrons. We love you guys too. Your names are Alex P., Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tolly, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, The Musical, Dora J, Enchanted Fairy, Esther M, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton, Here's A Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, K. Tur, We, Krista Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Antrim, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, a.k.a. the actress who played Peter Pan on Broadway, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, 1010XX. Hell yeah, that's that's 1010 in Roman numerals is XX. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, double X. <laughs> the Loch Ness. Tiffany and Derby, 
and Wes, the rootness tootness cowboy. <laughs> the rootness tootness cowboy, other than J. Frank Norris. That's that's true. Although I I do feel like J. Frank Norris is more of a bandit, and Wes the cowboy is more of just like a guy who likes cows. Yeah, Wes is also significantly less likely to have murdered somebody. <laughs> It's true. Although I don't know him personally, I don't know if he's ever been on trial for murder, but J. Frank Norris has been on trial for murder. Yeah. Wes seems like a good guy. Not a clan member. Um, not highly problematic. J. Frank Norris may not have been a clan member. We don't know. Okay, fair. He was, all right. I'm, <laughs> speaking of clan and, and murder and all that, it hit us with the TW. Okay, I can do this. <laughs> you know, they say that sleep deprivation is as impairing as alcohol. It's true. Yeah. Maybe the IFB should have had a campaign against sleep deprivation or biblically like preached yeah. against sleep deprivation instead of preaching against alcohol so much. So here's our, here's our TW. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we'll naturally mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid any graphic detail unless it's highly relevant and necessary to the story that we're telling, and we do our best to give the audience a heads up before we go into detail on any of these topics or anything else that we know can be triggering. This episode contains discussion of in-depth discussion of murder, particularly death by gunshot. Uh, and then there is a very broad trigger warning for body horror. As we get into the second half of the episode, we will be talking in scientific detail about the brain in the jar story. Scientific ish. <laughs> 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 it's it's gonna be a lot of fun we will give you a a final little heads up right before we get into it because we are gonna get fairly gross but like gross in a fun way i hope you stick around you know what i want to do i want to send this story to adam savage from mythbusters and see if i can get him to test it for me that sounds okay yes but can we go <laughs> yes i would love it where is he he's down in san francisco right road trip you and me road trip I don't I don't even care fun. how we get there. I'll I am I would love to be Mythbusters would be like my number 2 dream TV show to be on. So we ended the last episode, we've talked about Norris's early life and early pastorate and of course we've talked about all of the arson. We talked about his legacy as the what we have dubbed him the granddaddy of the IFB. We talked about his clan affiliations, the end of his life. But we skipped over the two stories that I heard the most often. These two stories were the biggest part of the legacy that this man left behind. They were stories that I was hearing 50 years or more after his death. And those, of course, are the tales of his murder trial and the story of the brain in the jar. So to talk about his murder trial, we are going back to the summer of 1926. This is shortly after Norris's forced exit from the Southern Baptist Convention. He is still a very influential, very well-known megachurch pastor. It's before he took the pastorate of the additional church in Detroit. 
We talked in the first episode of this series about Norris's troubles with the Catholic mayor, W.D. Davis, who served from 1909 to 1913 as the mayor of Fort Worth. As Norris was gearing up to lead the charge for prohibition, Davis was shutting down his big tent revivals and using his political power as mayor to make sure that the fires that Norris most likely set at his own home and church building were properly investigated. Years later, Norris was once again at the throat of another Catholic mayor. This mayor was H.C. Meacham, who served as mayor of Fort Worth from 1925 to 1927. My theory is <clears throat> Norris felt like he scored a major win with the prohibition battle, but then he had to find something else to do to stay relevant. So he won the prohibition thing. He got, you know, he played his part in getting prohibition passed. And then the Scopes trial happened and it was kind of a technical victory for the side of anti-evolution and anti-higher criticism and biblical literalism. So the next summer, maybe Norris found himself a little bored. Maybe he needed new trouble to stir up. It was a technical victory for fundamentalism, but the side of the people really following the trial was not on the side of the fundamentalists and it was a big black eye right but the the end of the scopes trial was kind of a case closed thing it wasn't when the trial ended it wasn't the hot topic anymore as sadie said fort worth's mayor was a catholic man uh, named hc meacham um and norris hated this man and publicly criticized him through newspapers that he owned. Uh, last week we spoke about how Norris owned like basically all of the Baptist newspapers in Texas. Right, and then he sold he sold that off, but he continued to be a major force in Baptist publishing in Texas for the rest of his life. Yeah, and so Norris was writing in these newspapers that he owned that he was critical. He was very critical of the city of Fort Worth. Past, uh, purchasing a parcel of land that had been owned by the castle, the Catholic Church, and they purchased this parcel of land for ninety thousand dollars, which adjusted for inflation is one and a half million dollars in uh, twenty twenty three dollars. So Norris protested this purchase, um, and he believed that this was a handout of public funds to the Catholic Church. By he, he did this so he protested in front of a business that was owned by Mayor Meacham. Mayor Meacham responded to this protest by firing five store employees who attended Norris's church. This was a, a grave misstep on the part of Mayor Meacham because Norris then published details about Meacham's retaliation against the church members in his newspaper, as well as publishing a claim that Meacham had paid $22,000 or about $400,000 adjusted for inflation, shouts out to Brittany Dawn, to uh, hide evidence of an alleged affair. It, it, Norris used this newspaper article that was in his newspaper as proof that his claim was true when he got on the public on so, uh, on Sunday. So he basically published an article and then said, it says it in the newspaper, therefore it's true. Oh, so he jack-checked himself. Okay. Yeah, he jack-checked, he, and he's, it's very like the Bible is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true. <laughs> <laughs> says it in the newspaper, which I wrote. Like It's, it's like when um, Dick Cheney is like leaking information about WMDs to the New York Times. And then when they're like, do you have evidence of this? He's like, yeah, it's the, the New York Times wrote an article. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't, 
like so i can't tell you whether or not this claim about the payout or the affair is true the fundamentalist websites that i found who had who who are telling this story tended to frame this as norris was exposing corruption in the mayor's office and the other publications that i've like the secular publications that i found information about this intended to refer to this as like norris was known to come up with grandiose accusations about his political enemies at very convenient times yeah and norris already hated the guy just for being a catholic at this point in time norris was preaching entire sermon series on what he referred to as romanism he was really on the anti-catholic bandwagon at this point i personally don't think that a conspiracy theory that like an almost clansman said was proven true because it was writ- printed in a newspaper that is owned by the almost Klansman. Um, yeah. So, but we should, we should point out that firing employees of your department store, when you like, you're the mayor, you have a department store, this preacher that you have beef with prints claims about you in his newspaper. You can't just go and fire your employees over that. That's not good. So that's corruption. But they attended Norris's church, so there's like an 80% chance that they're Klansmen. So you can, I think you should be able to fire people for being Klansmen. But that's just me. Right, but you um, shouldn't be able to fire people because their pastor said something you don't like. No, that's true. That is good. Like, he f***ed up. He did f*** up. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, like, we should also point out potential bias is, like we said, Norris's hatred of the Catholics is tied to his deep ties and support for the KKK. Additionally, much of the anti-bootlegger rhetoric that um, permeated Texas politics of the time was, in fact, dog whistles, like anti-Catholic dog whistles, because bootlegging was a crime that was heavily associated with the Irish and the Italians, aka the Catholics. So many people took issue with what Norris was writing about Mayor Meacham and the Catholics in his newspapers, including a man named Dexter Chips, who was a friend of Mayor Meacham, who owned a local lumber company. Yeah, and and Dexter Chips was also not a fan of prohibition. No. I don't want to slander the man further than J. Frank Norris is going to in this episode, but man definitely liked to drink. I mean, I like to drink. Not as much as Dexter Chips. No, that's true. Probably not. According to, I mean, they did not have good mental health care in yeah, true that Texas in the or in, in like the nineteen unless you could so. afford to go to the sanitarium with at the hot springs. Yeah, but then they might like I don't know lobotomize you. That's what they were doing around that time, right? Probably. According to J. Frank Norris, on Saturday, July seventeenth, nineteen twenty-six, he received a phone call from Dexter Chips regarding the way that Norris had been writing about Mayor Meacham in one of the newspapers that he owned. According to Norris, Chips threatened Norris over the phone and said that he was coming to Norris's church to confront him because he wouldn't stand it any longer. Norris said that he was unfamiliar with Chips and had no knowledge of who he was. Norris claims that Chips burst into his office and threatened Norris's life and told him that he would kill Norris over what he had written about Mayor Meacham in the newspaper. Norris was left with no choice but to shoot Chips three times, killing him. Norris then sat down, dictated his version of events detailing what had just happened. I don't know about you, but like my BS meter is going off the charts right here this is yeah yeah so given that the victim of this shooting was politically well connected and given that the country had just gained a new appetite for 
scandalous public trials, this predictably set up an absolutely massive trial. Yes. This trial was written about in, in New York Times, Time Magazine. Yeah. And it, it wasn't as big as the Scopes trial, but this was a pop culture moment. It's important to note that this is Texas and the death penalty was 100% on the table for Norris had he been found guilty of murder. So we know, we know a few things about the details of the murder. We're going to do that and then we're going to get into the details of the trial. So thanks to a nosy switchboard operator who also happened to be a faithful member of Norris's church, that there had been a phone call between Chips and Meacham earlier in the day on the day of the shooting, where Chips had maybe lightly implied that he was willing to take care of Meacham's little J. Frank Norris problem. Chips was also reportedly going around town, places like his barber shop and his favorite bar, saying things like, somebody ought to kill that SOB. Chips was also seen the day of the shooting walking around with a gun-shaped package wrapped up in brown paper. So the defense counsel was a man named Dayton Moses, and this is a quote from him from during the trial. He said, thank God in Texas, you don't have to wait until you are shot down to protect your own life. Dr. Norris is a man of courage. It is worth noting, however, that Chips did not have a gun on him when he went to confront Norris. So all this talk about waiting until you are shot down is a little bit preposterous. Right. So we're setting up the the defense is going to be, oh, I had to shoot him in self-defense because he was threatening me. J. Frank Norris and Mr. L.H. Nutt, who was a church member that was present in Norris's office at the time of the shooting, both testified that Chips burst into the office, was making threats, was drunk and belligerent, and he put his hand underneath his jacket towards his right hip, and they both assumed that he had a gun in there because that's the motion you would do if you were right-handed and going to draw a gun. It, It would stand. The thing is that Chips was verifiably under the influence at this point, so it would stand to reason that he was acting like he had a gun, whether he did or not. But according to Norris and Nutt and uh, Jane Hartman, the church secretary who was in the next room, Norris tried to deflect these threats from Chips. He told him, there's the door, you need to leave, get out of here, get out of here. And according to those three people, Chips left the room, but charged back into the room, reached for his pocket or his right hip. And that's when Norris shot first and shot him three times. As Chips bled out on the floor, Norris yelled to his secretary to call an ambulance and abruptly left the office. Norris was interviewed by police, some of whom were antagonistic towards him and some of whom were his close allies. He was also interviewed by reporters that same night because the reporters wanted to get the story out before the Sunday morning issue. The Sunday morning after the shooting was already poised to be a test of the congregation's loyalty to their pastor for maybe an unexpected reason. The church janitor, Balaam Shaw, was a black man who had made a profession of faith. Of course, it was unthinkable that he would be allowed to join as a member of Norris's First Baptist Church, but he had chosen to join a black church nearby, and Balaam Shaw had requested that Norris break from tradition and baptize him in the baptistry at First Baptist Church of Fort Worth. 
You might be surprised to learn that Norris said yes. Norris was enthusiastic about this, evidently. That seems odd. But this Sunday would have been a very remarkable Sunday, even had there not been a shooting. So on the day after the shooting, a massive crowd gathered at First Baptist Church. They filled even the overflow rooms because they wanted to see what Norris would say, having killed a man the day before in his church office. Norris didn't even address the shooting. He preached a basic sermon delivered in a monotone rather than his usual fire and brimstone. Norris called an altar call, expecting an average of 25 to 100 converts, which was a normal day at that church at that time. On this particular day, only five people came forward. Norris laughed off the low numbers at the altar call, saying from the pulpit that this is unusual, but saying, quote, the unusual is to be expected around First Baptist Church. And I brought in that detail because that is such a fundamentalist thing to say, to laugh off something that looks like a failure and turn it into a branding opportunity. After the service concluded, the day after the shooting, hundreds of people rushed the platform to shake Norris's hand and offer their support in the coming investigation and trial. Balaam Shaw's baptism was announced as being postponed to the next week, and then it was quietly pushed off. Norris never baptized Balaam Shaw. Mm. Which leads me to believe that Norris was using him like this is this janitor is a man who has been taken in by Norris's personality and charisma and his set of beliefs to the point that he would make this extremely unusual request to be surely the first black person ever baptized at this church by J. Frank Norris. And Norris accepted his request when it was expedient for him to gain publicity. And then when a bigger publicity thing happened, Norris just blew him off like he didn't even matter. Yeah, the most consistent thing about Norris throughout this entire story is his blatant and and shameless opportunism. Leading up to the trial, uh, there was much criticism of Norris for his apparent coolness about the whole thing. One writer said that Norris appeared no more upset than he, the writer, had been when he shot his first turkey. Norris cited uh, in responses when he spoke to reporters, he cited preachers who had preached their own wives' funeral services and appeared composed even though they were heartbroken. He cited this as proof that appearances don't tell the whole story of a person's feelings. Norris continued to capitalize on the publicity of the fact that he had killed a guy. He canceled all of his upcoming revival meetings for the rest of the summer and announced instead he would spend the summer in Tarrant County. Norris said that he was using the publicity from the shooting and the trial to proclaim the gospel and promote his ministry. Other people, including me, saw this as a PR stunt to rehab his image in the county and win over potential jurors. So this trial could not be held in Fort Worth due to the high level of Ku Klux Klan influence in the city government, as well as Norris's prominence as a pastor and as a public figure. So the venue of this trial had to be changed to Austin. Yeah, it seems like everyone in Fort Worth knew who Norris was, and all of them, nobody had a neutral opinion on him. Everyone knew him, and everyone either loved him or hated him. And he was buddy-buddy with the KKK, so anybody who was with the KKK would have naturally 
loved Norris and also hated Catholics and loved Norris because he hated Catholics. So they would have been biased toward Norris and anybody who was either pro-Catholic or anti-KKK or both would have been biased against him. And everybody seemed to fall into one of those two camps. So uh, having, having the trial, they did have the grand jury indictment in Fort Worth. And then they had the first day of the trial in Fort Worth. And then after that, trying to do jury selection, they gave up and moved it to Austin. What I found interesting was that the Time Magazine article acknowledged the high level of KKK influence in Fort Worth and the seriousness of the Klan versus Catholic feud that was going on at this time. The article clarified most interestingly, and I thought this was a little weird that they phrased it this way, but they said that the jury contained no one who was known to be either a Klansman or a Catholic, but it's just kind of weird to me that they would make that sort of false equivalency. Of course, this precaution was obviously necessary because, as we spoke about last week, the Klan Grand Dragon Lloyd Bloodworth, who was a friend of Norris's, declared the Klan's support for Norris in the trial after the charges had been filed. But those are kind of, those are the two big groups that the two biggest groups that would have been biased against Norris or for Norris. So not only did Lloyd Bloodworth uh, make public his support for Norris, he actually was invited to lead in prayer in a church service on a Sunday morning, just a couple weeks after the shooting before the grand jury convened. During his sermon on that day, Norris railed against the Catholics who were on the grand jury, uh, who were, it was, so it was, the grand jury had convened, but not gotten really started yet. Norris railed against this grand jury because there were Catholics on it. And of course, they're going to indict me because it's a cons- it's a Catholic conspiracy. And this brings an additional element to the planned baptism of Balaam Shaw that just got brushed off. Because did Norris find a better publicity vehicle and choose not to do it? Or did Norris feel like he would jeopardize the support of the KKK if he did the baptism? Or did Norris just not see Balaam Shaw as a person worth considering? Hmm. Could be any of the above. So Norris was indicted by a Fort Worth jury eventually on July 29th, 1926. The prosecutor was a man named Bill McLean, and he made the accusation that Norris, who was an avid shooting enthusiast, intended to kill Mr. Chips before he entered his office and knew that he would have plausible deniability due to Mr. Chips' angry and inebriated state. The defense alleged that Mr. Chips had promised to his friend, Mayor Meacham, that he would either stop Norris from exposing Mayor Meacham's corruption any further, or that he would kill him, and that Norris had the right to kill Mr. Chips the moment that he set foot in his office. So that's the... The basic premise of the prosecution and defense, but it does get significantly more complicated as we are going to work through this trial. Leading up to the trial, Norris claimed that this was actually the fourth or fifth time that supporters of the Catholics or the Knights of Columbus had showed up at his office to make trouble. And he had always been able to successfully defuse those interactions without the use of lethal force previously, but this time 
violence just couldn't be avoided. Those darn Catholics just didn't want to hear what Norris had to say. But uh, if you wanted to hear what Norris had to say about Romanism, you could order the complete volume for $1.50, which is between 15 and 25 bucks in 2023 money. That's incredible. This is, I mean, is, is this like the 1920s version of monetizing your apology yes. video? <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. This man used the publicity from his murder trial to shill his own books and his own newspaper. Brittany Dawn would be so proud. This is incredible. And what's even more wild is this wasn't unsuccessful. Reportedly, the church gained 600 members between Chip's death in July and September of the same year. Wow. 600 members in three months. That's crazy. So the trial got off to a rough start on Monday, November 1st, 1926. And this trial ended up going for like two and a half months. It's a whole ordeal. But if you want a spectacle, like two months, that's... First, so before we actually even get to the trial, we have to talk about Carl Glaze. Carl Glaze was a 14-year-old church member who had bragged to his friends that he had happened to stop by Norris's office at just the right moment to see the shooting occur. The problem was that Carl Glaze's account differed significantly from the official story of Norris and Nutt and Norris's secretary. Interesting. Glaze's name was on the witness list for the grand jury indictment, but then he ended up not being needed to make the case, so he was never called. And then his name was on the witness list again for the trial, but was removed before the trial concluded. It came to light later that friends and employees of the church had locked this 14-year-old boy in a basement belonging to a church member, and nobody quite seemed to know what happened down in the basement, but when he came back up, his story had changed and now matched Norris's and Nutt's story. Strangely, no charges of witness tampering were ever brought. As we, as we move towards the beginning of the trial, it seems that perhaps some lessons were learned from the Scopes trial the previous summer. Ladders were placed against windows in the courtroom so that court officials and attorneys could get in and out quickly when the crowd became too tight. And 32 seats were placed across the front of the room that were reserved for press only. And throughout the trial, all 32 seats were filled. This trial is actually kind of a neat moment in women in journalism also. There were some female reporters who got their big breaks reporting on this trial. The trial did begin in Fort Worth, so before they were even doing jury selection, the first witness called was the mayor. The defense attorney tore into him and asked him, didn't you tell a man by the name of Richie that Norris ought to be shot through the belly? And the mayor loudly denied this accusation. And after like, even just trying to get timeline established and, and get through jury selection, they ended up moving the trial 150 miles away to Austin because it became abundantly clear that it would have been impossible to get an unbiased jury in Fort Worth. This trial was just like the, the shenanigans are only beginning. There are so many shenanigans that I read an entire book about this trial and still had trouble 
putting it all into context in a way that will make sense for our audience. I mean, this is more shenanigans than like the whole scopes monkey trial. Oh, this is more shenanigans than the whole computer expert router hacker in France thing. Oh God. This is, this is so much worse than that. I feel like I got dumber after (laughs) (laughs) like I I read that explanation of what happened. I was just like, I feel like I'm dumber after having read this. It didn't make any goddamn sense whatsoever. Just maybe there was somebody in France who hacked into Josh Duggar's computer and used it as a proxy to download. (laughs) I don't know what, I don't know. I feel like we could do an entire podcast about (laughs) stupid stuff that's happened at trials, like famous trials. (laughs) This is so, this is so much worse because the basic premise is the prosecution says that you chip, was all words he he just came to say his piece and leave and norris shot him as he was walking out the door the defense is yeah he walked out the door but then he ran back through the door with his hand on his hip i thought he had a gun so i shot him but the actual trial examined so much more than that because the mayor was kind of vicariously on trial a large amount of the testimony in the trial dealt with whether the mayor paid off chips to go kill Norris because the defense is trying to prove that chips came in here with murderous intent and that Norris had valid reason to believe that somebody who was affiliated with the mayor came on purpose to kill him, not just to to have a verbal discussion. And the prosecution... Yeah, but chips didn't even have a gun. Right, but if Norris truly believed he did, he might get away with murder. The prosecution is trying to prove that Norris had no reason to think that this guy actually came to, ch- to kill him. Chips is just a blowhard who wanted to come yell at you. In trying to prove all of that, they ended up interviewing, having the mayor on, tr- on the stand. They ended up having the city manager on the stand. And a large amount of the trial ended up dealing with, did Meacham pay off? chips to come do this or did he encourage chips to come do this and could norris have possibly been aware that the mayor paid off chips to come do this if he did in fact pay him off early in the trial norris gave interviews outside the courtroom he was bantering with reporters he was just feeding them lines feeding them content he really seemed to be enjoying the attention One of the first big bombshells from this trial came from O.E. Carr, the Fort Worth city manager. Carr said that after Chips was killed, a man came to see Mayor Meacham and offered to kill Norris for five grand. And Carr testified that Meacham told this other guy, I will pay five grand to keep him alive if that's what's necessary and sent the man away. So yeah, before they're even seating the jury, there's like a a pseudo extra trial to see this is not great legal proceedings as far as like i'm not an expert but this doesn't seem like the way you're supposed to do a trial this is farcical this is but there's all of this stuff before they even seat the jury about did meacham potentially pay off chips yeah but did they ever find out who like this man was was this real was so here but here's the thing Carr testified that he and Meacham believed this would-be assassin to be a plant by Norris's lawyers. No. 
So the mayor, who is not on trial, is accusing Norris, who is on trial, of planting a guy to go to his office and offer to kill Norris for a certain amount of money. After Carr left, city manager, O.E. Carr, left the witness stand, Norris's attorney asked him, do you still believe that? Referring to, do you still believe that I planted a guy to come to the mayor's office and offer to kill Norris for five grand? And Carr said, yes, I do. And Norris's attorney just sucker punched him. And there was a physical, he punched him. No, what? (laughs) And there was a physical fight in the courtroom. (laughs) And he still gets to keep being Norris's lawyer for the whole thing. Like, I don't know if this is worse than the judge at the Scopes trial going to the church to see William Jennings Bryan preach. But this is like, I mean, it's like, I mean, it is like the wild, wild west. It's in, in 1926, when we say wild west like obviously we don't mean swinging saloon doors and dusty streets and people pulling out their six shooters over cattle rustling or holding up stage coaches fort worth was a modern city at the time they had telegraphs the the automobile automobile was gaining popularity very quickly they had streetcar service that had been operational for like 60 years which we're going to get to but the the spirit of the Wild West was definitely alive and well in Fort Worth in 1926. After this whole hoopla of the lawyer punching a witness, um, the lawyer was allowed to just stay on the case. And it took a week to seat a jury out of over 500 potential jurors that were called. Most were disqualified either because they were affiliated with the KKK or were Catholic. But many more were disqualified because they either heard Norris on the radio or admitted to be subscribers to the searchlight. So it took a very long time to get through jury selection. A scale model of the church offices was built so that witnesses could refer to it. And we were finally kind of on the move towards getting this trial to go somewhere after grand jury indictment and then the defendant accusing the defendant in cooperation with the kkk accusing the grand jury of being biased and then uh the mayor also sort of being on trial and having to move it 150 miles away and then the mayor still sort of being on trial and then a lawyer punching the defendant now we're ready to actually start this thing the now we're ready to actually get down to the question of did norris shoot this guy in self-defense or did he shoot him in the back as he was leaving the office so i read that there was a huge question over whether or not how many guns were in the room when chips was shot right but there is a there is a potential that norris had a second gun planted to make it look like chips had a gun on him because this is before fingerprinting was standard. The way that Norris supporters spin that detail is Chips did come, Norris supporters would tell you that Chips did come in with a gun on him and the police took it off his body rather than putting it into evidence so that they could frame Norris and say, see Norris shot this unarmed man. Was Norris saying that he saw a gun or was he saying that he thought that chips norris was saying i definitely thought he had a gun because he moved for his hip and nut the church member who was there with norris of course 
corroborates Norris's testimony perfectly. There was just significant confusion during this whole trial about how many guns were in the office and who they belonged to, because the gun that Norris pulled out of his desk drawer and shot chips with was Norris's gun, but the rumor was that Norris carried everywhere he went, which is, according to Norris and a lot of people who knew him, not accurate. According to Norris and Balaam Shaw and other people who knew Norris, it was J. Frank Norris's gun, but he didn't carry. He left it in his desk drawer because Balaam was not only the janitor, he was also kind of a night watchman. And it was in his desk drawer in case Balaam needed to use it. Hmm. Okay. Strangely, as much as I love conspiracy theories about extra shooters and extra guns in places we don't expect them, the theory about Chips coming in with a gun and the police taking it off of him to frame Norris is not one I'm particularly inclined to believe. Did they say where the body was lying and where he was shot? Because if Norris's story is that he shot Chips while he was coming back into the room, and the prosecution's story is that chips was shot while he was leaving then it doesn't really make a lot of sense for the other major question of the trial and piece of evidence that particular that possibly incriminates norris is where precisely was chips standing and which way was he facing when he was shot so norris and nut and norris's secretary all said that chips came into the office made some threats, was drunk and belligerent, left the office and like still had his hand, his left hand on the office door. And before he fully shut the door with his left hand, he shoved it back open with his left hand and came in with his right hand on his hip. And that's when Norris shot him was when he came back in. So this is a time before crime scene photographs fingerprinting, many of the forensic tools that are used now. Some people, both police and civilians who were present during the immediate aftermath of the shooting, said that Chip's body was in the corner of Norris's office, which lines up with Norris's story that he left, came back in, and then Norris shot him. But other people, both police and civilians, thought they saw him lying just outside of Norris's office door, which would line up with the prosecution's theory that Chips was already leaving when Norris shot him. It, this is really complicated because like the police couldn't, or somebody or a witness, couldn't just snap a picture. And by the time the police arrived, the ambulance arrived just shortly thereafter. And Chips was still alive when the ambulance arrived, so they scooped him up and put him in an ambulance where he died later. It's not like he was he was already deceased when the police arrived. So in the hustle and bustle, people thought they saw different things, or it's possible that his body was moved by the police to make it easier for the ambulance to come get him, like get him out of the office and into the hallway right outside the office so that it's easier when the people come with the ambulance. So we don't really know. I mean, Norris could have shot him and then tried to move him either to make it look like he was in a different place than he was or do that under the guise of possibly helping him or possibly actually be trying to help him and like try to revive. Right. Or Norris could have shot him and then said, oh, I mean, this witness testimony doesn't support this. 
but if Norris had been a good guy, he could have moved him into the office to try to perform CPR or something. Or if Norris had been a bad guy and had shot him out in the hallway as he was leaving, Norris could have had him dragged into the office to make it look like he was in more danger when he shot him than he actually was. So long story short, we don't know. Witness testimony varies too much to even know where his body was when the police got there, much less where his body was in space when he got shot. We remember Carl Glaze, the 14-year-old boy who said that he witnessed the shooting but was convinced not to testify by church members who were definitely not paid off by Norris. The only other potential witnesses were either women in Norris's secretarial pool or people who were in or near the church office at the time of the shooting. The prosecution called a 76-year-old woman named Roxy Parker. That's a great name. She said she was near the door outside Norris's office at the time of the shooting. Roxy Parker said that she saw Chips get shot. He was leaving the office. He had one hand on the door and he raised up the other hand over his head, like, like near his face, like a wave goodbye and said something to the effect of, you'll see me again, I'll be back. And then the shooting started. She was adamant that he did not charge back into the office. He got shot on his way out. Wow. Roxy Parker also said that she saw a young teenage boy on the stairs as she was getting the heck out of there, which possibly corroborates Carl Glaze's testimony. Parker then claims that she got down the stairs as quickly as she could and ran out into the street and was almost hit by a car in the street as she was getting away from shooting. Her testimony was really powerful. So the prosecution immediately rested because they wanted the jury going into the defense with, with Roxy Parker on their mind. So this began an entire string of the defense working to impeach the prosecution's witnesses. On one hand, like witness impeachment is just a thing that you do if you're a person who wants to be found innocent of the crime that you're accused of. I did mock trial when I was in high school. I know about this. Like this it's is a, a legitimate legal tactic. Yeah, it's it's everyone does it. On the other hand, it feels weird coming from a pastor though. Does it not? Like, does this not feel strange for a pastor to be trying to do witness impeachment on a witness who is part of his own congregation? Yeah. It just gives me the ick. But is it that much worse than Jack Hiles coming after uh, Victor Nischik and accusing him of trying to seduce the woman who works for him and ask her to run away with him? Because it feels like kind of the... It does feel different, though, because Nischik was Hiles' primary accuser. Roxy Parker was not Norris's accuser. She was just somebody who said she was there. And if you're trying to impeach a witness, it doesn't necessarily have to be like you're saying, oh, this person's a liar. It could also be like, oh, this person is old and their vision is bad and they're just not reliable to... And she and she's like an old lady. And this was a whole topic of conversation at the trial. Everybody is trying to make it seem like both the defense and the prosecution attorneys who are questioning her are trying to make it seem like they care about old ladies the most. One attorney compared her to his mother and spent extensive time telling the court how she reminded him of his mother. That's bizarre. Ugh. Yeah, um, that was Norris's attorney. These, mm, his attorneys were something else. So the defense tried to impeach 
Roxy Parker by challenging minor details of the things that she had said on the stand unrelated to the shooting. For example, she said that she ran out into the street and almost got hit by a car and they spent way too much time trying to prove that other witnesses, they called other witnesses who were outside the building at the time of the shooting, who said that they did not see an old lady almost get hit by a car. So they're just trying to pick apart her testimony. Again, it's a normal legal tactic, but this is just odd. Can you imagine if you were like watching the trial and you're like, yes, I'm going to see a murder trial. And then it's just days and days and days of people who were just outside talking about what traffic was like and like what the weather was like. And <laughs> did, did, the, did you see an old lady? Like you're not like- a witness to the murder. You're a witness to an old lady getting hit by a car, almost hit by a car or not. And can you come speak about that? I think, um, I believe that I read, I did not write this down in my notes, so I could be wrong, but I believe that I read the prosecution or the defense had over 100 witnesses on their witness list. And they didn't end up calling all of them, but this was, you know, I love details, but I think the level of detail here is officially too much. I mean, it's also a legitimate legitimate legal strategy to just kind of try to flood the zone with bullshit. And, and just try to, like, throw spaghetti. Is that not how he got off for perjury? I mean, it is how he got off for perjury. Like, it worked one time. Yeah. I mean, if it works for perjury, why wouldn't it work for murder? I guess this, like, the, yeah. I don't know. It, ju- it just seems like these days this would not, absolutely not fly. And they would just put a stop to this. And they would say, no, this... But the judge was personally and politically connected to the guy who had just got elected mayor of Austin or governor of, no, governor of Texas. And this trial was increasing Texas tourism. So there's that factor as well as to why the judge may have let this trial go way longer than it needed to. So after attempting to impeach Roxy Parker, the defense called L.H. Nutt, the only absolutely definite witness to the shooting. Nutt's testimony is really interesting because he's trying to 100% agree with Norris exactly. He's trying, he is there to back up everything that Norris has to say, and that's his function in this trial. And as a loyal minion of J. Frank Norris, one thing that really caught my attention reading some of Nutt's testimony was his response to Roxy Parker's claim that Chips just put up his hand to wave goodbye. So Nutt claimed that Chips left the office, almost closed the door, similarly to what Roxy Parker described, but then came back in the door with his right hand near his hip and his left hand up over his shoulder. So potentially, Nutt and Parker both saw this same motion, like left hand up near the face or near the shoulder, and interpreted it very differently, because... If that's what really happened, Nutt and Norris interpreted this as aggression and he's going for a gun. And Parker interpreted it as he's waving goodbye. So that's interesting. And this is where we get back into the the mayoral involvement or not in this crime. So Fred Holland, who was a former Fort Worth police officer, 
testified that he overheard a conversation between Chips and city detective Harry Connor, in which Chips plainly said to city detective Harry Connor that he was going to kill Norris. What? And this was during a a on-foot discussion that the cops had with Chips, in which Chips was heavily intoxicated, and the cops were like, hey, we've got to either get you to your hotel room or you're going in the drunk tank. And supposedly, according to Fred Holland, Chips told the city detective, yes, I'm drunk, and yes, I have a gun on me, and I am planning on killing this guy pretty soon, like in the next couple days sometimes. And the city detective was like, sure, buddy, can I have the gun? And Chips said, no, you can't have it. And the detective tried to take it off him, and Chips was like, no, you can't have it. And the detective was just like, fine then, let's get you to your hotel room. And they just let him go? And continued to let someone walk around with a gun who was heavily intoxicated and claiming that he was imminently planning on killing someone. So either the Fort Worth Police Department is just the worst and useless, or Holland is lying through his teeth about this. I Yeah, and Holland was a major Norris ally, so hmm. you make up your own mind on this. Holland told the jury that he immediately went to Norris's office the day before the shooting occurred and warned Norris that this that somebody was coming to kill him. And he told Norris everything he knew about chips. He told Norris that he's a lumber guy, he's a heavy drinker, this is what he looks like, these are his habits, he's got this gun, I overheard this conversation, this is exactly what he said, and he's coming to kill you. On rebuttal, the defense reminded the jury that Norris had said in the newspaper that he had never heard of Chips prior to the shooting. So the defense called a witness that directly contradicted something that Norris had previously said. Good job, defense. So City Detective Harry Connor was called as a defense witness. He testified that Chips was intoxicated and had a gun in his possession when they had that conversation about two days before the shooting and corroborated Holland's story that Chips said he was going to go kill Norris and that he, City Detective Harry Connor, just let him walk off with the gun. ACAB stands for all cops are bad at their jobs. Good job, Fort Worth Police Department. <laughs> this whole thing is so incredibly messy. It is so messy. My conclusion is that absolutely nobody in this entire ordeal is telling the truth. <laughs> That's pretty much the conclusion that I've come to, except for Roxy Parker. I feel like she was probably speaking her truth. She may have been incorrect about what she saw, or she may have been correct about what she saw, but I feel like she's maybe the only truthful person here. After Holland's testimony, there was an entire string of witnesses called to assassinate the character of Chips days worth of witnesses. I think I read it was four days of witness testimony, just person after person after person testifying. Chips was a really nice guy when he was sober, but once he got drunk, he got aggressive and got into fights. He would often apologize sober for things that he said when he was intoxicated, but he was just not a nice guy to be around when he was drunk and he was drunk a lot. He was drunk before noon on the day of the shooting. He was really, really loyal to the mayor and would have done anything for him. For four days. Two or three testimonies would have been sufficient, but the defense wasted 
four days of the court's time with this. So the phone operator that we spoke about when we talked about the grand jury indictment came back to testify that she snooped on conversations between Chips and Mayor Meacham, that she had heard Chips threatening and promising to kill Norris. And this phone operator was a member of Norris's church, but the way that she told the story, Meacham didn't stand up to Chips hard and say, no, don't go kill that man. Let him have his day in court or Meacham kind of half-heartedly said, uh, no, it doesn't have to go that far. You don't have to do that. According to the phone operator's testimony and the city manager's testimony and other people who spoke on behalf of Meacham, Norris was a really big thorn in Meacham's side, but he did not want Chips to kill Norris and go down for it nor did he want Chips to potentially get injured in the process, um, which is what eventually happened. Yeah, but that rings true for me. That's like the only thing in this trial that rings true for me. That seems, that tracks of all the things in this trial that make no sense, that's a thing that makes sense. That Meacham would prefer Norris not to be alive, but not so much that he would cause somebody to hurt him or encourage somebody to kill him. And he certainly wouldn't pay for somebody to kill him. Finally, Jane Hartwell, Norris's secretary, was called, and she testified that she had not seen Roxy Parker in the room directly outside the office as Parker claimed to be. Which is suspicious to me because the there are only three people that are telling the same story, and those three people are Norris, Nutt, and Jane Hartwell. Do you want to know my theory? Oh, definitely. My theory, so I remember reading that Norris said that he shot Chips and then immediately sat down to write out what happened. I think that when he sat down to write that out, he sat down with Hartwell and Nutt and said, I'm writing out what happened make sure like do you are you guys all in accord with that this is what happened and then he writes down i saw chips barge back into the room and with his hand on his hip reach for the gun we're the only people that saw like i think that when he sat down to write that out it was him sitting down and either saying let's get our story straight or maybe not explicitly saying let's get our story straight but this is what happened you guys all saw the same thing that i did right and then it can actually rewrite a person's memory because memories of things that happen directly after traumatic incidents are fragile. Yes. Um, and so having somebody else's input can actually write over what just happened. And to all accounts, Norris was pretty shaken up. Uh, we know that he behaved very uh, um, unusually cold. He was very cold. He was calmer than you would think he would be having just had to kill somebody you know to his story had to kill somebody but he also a, a fact that came up in this trial is that norris picked up the three bullet casings off the floor and put them in his pocket and then just really yeah he picked up the casings off the floor and this isn't him trying to hide something because this is before the science that would tell you what gun particular shells came from or casings came from or anything like that. But he picked up these three casings off the floor, put them in his pocket, and then just walked around with them in his pocket for a while and then later threw them in the trash. Interesting. So he was not particularly 
thinking straight one way or another. That if your memory is like directly following a traumatic incident are susceptible to outside influence. I've also had experiences. You will see somebody who will like, you will be watching something happening and then somebody will be narrating what they see happening and what they're narrating is completely different than what's actually happening. And you'll get confused. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's a thing that's happened to me before. Easiest example that I can think of for this is like sports or sports commentators where a commentator will say that they see something happening in the moment. And then upon further review, the, what actually appears in the moment, like when they do the replay, it's different, but everybody will just go with what they thought they saw in the moment or what the commentator commentated happened in the moment. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying with that. This trial is not necessarily black and white between did Norris uh, want to kill Chips and see a convenient opportunity and kill him even though he didn't need to in self-defense, or did he act completely perfectly and appropriately in self-defense? It's not black and white. Those are two of the options of things that could have happened. But there are other things that could have happened. Another option is that Norris knew Chips was coming and set up the opportunity himself to kill somebody and look like a tough guy. Another option that is not really terribly unlikely is that Norris killed Chips because he thought his life might maybe be in danger and he was a hothead and he lost his temper at Chips, which is still murder and not something that people ought to do, but is a different moral motivation than what the prosecution claimed, which was that he set up Chips to come to his office and potentially knew he was coming and decided before he ever got there to kill him or took a convenient opportunity to kill an enemy. I think that that's probably the most likely option, just that Chips was there and that Norris probably legitimately did think that Chips had a gun, but I think that Chips probably didn't barge back into the room like Norris said he did. So I like I think that Norris probably shot Chips in a not justified manner and then lied about it after the fact to try to make it seem more justified, but I don't think that it was premeditated. I think I don't, that, Yeah, I don't think it was premeditated. Yeah. I wouldn't call it murder in cold blood. I would more lean towards it, uh, it being a case of somebody losing their temper. I would say it's more like manslaughter than murder. I think that yeah. if they'd gone for a manslaughter charge, then... Mm-hmm. Although I don't know what the legal statute in Texas was at the time, if manslaughter was an available charge or if they could have done a lesser included count of manslaughter. Yeah, Texas really likes state executions, so which is why they were pushing for Norris to be uh, to get capital punishment. the The way that this trial played out, it became a black and white battle between was Norris one hundred percent guilty or one hundred percent innocent like murder in cold blood or completely justifiable self-defense. And I think that erases all of the different options in between. As much as I hate to potentially make excuses for Norris, I think it's valuable as we're examining him as a IFB leader to think about his motivations for this killing uh, and to be more thorough than investigating two 
in two extreme ends of a spectrum and not looking at the middle. Well, I think that's also to do with them judging the audience for the case, like judging what they thought the jury would go for. Like, I think that the prosecution took a gamble that they thought the jury would go for the spicy, cold-blooded murder charge rather than the, you shot a guy, uh, probably not justifiably, like what's going on? Like, that's Mm -hmm. not as strong. Like, you take a stronger position and you're more likely to be successful is I think the gamble that they tried to make. Yeah. And there's also the fact that this was a politically motivated trial against Norris, not at all to excuse him or say that he didn't do anything wrong. Not at all. What I'm saying, the, the local government really hated him. Now he gave them good reason to hate, (laughs) to hate him. So after Jane Hartwell's testimony, it was time for Norris to take the stand. Norris wept on the witness stand as he said that he did not want to kill Chips and never would have done so if he didn't believe his life was in danger. Chips' widow, who had been divorced from her husband but was working on a reconciliation that they both really wanted, wept in the audience as well as she listened to the pastor tell how he had killed her husband. So while Norris appeared on the witness stand in tears, when the trial went to recess overnight, Norris was observed in very good spirits. He was seen drinking an orange cooler with extra sugar. So I looked up this drink. It's orange juice, mint, black salt, and soda over ice. And I can't decide if that sounds like orange juice and mint seems like it would maybe work. Salt kind of throws me off, but who knows? He was also seen chatting romantically with his wife and rocking in rocking chairs on the hotel porch. The same weekend... Norris was seen in church, and by all accounts, he seemed to feel less agitated. He gave an interview to a reporter, like, in whispers during the sermon at the church service that he visited. That's a little rude. Yeah. He also was seen yawning and looking at his watch during the sermon. I mean, was it that? I guess he's used to the fire and brimstone and fireworks, and I have a letter from church member asking me if it's okay to buy lingerie for another man's wife in a God-honoring way. Yeah. It's... Um, you know, he was bragging about <laughs> his daughter who had just recently married a, a Harvard graduate and was moving up in the world. Uh, I don't know. Like, that really bugs me uh, hours after he was crying on the witness stand about the man that he killed. That doesn't sit right with me. As the trial was wrapping up, the prosecution made the motion that the jury be charged to take whether Norris provoked the difficulty as part of their deliberation. So to consider, Hmm. like, give weight to whether he provoked Chips to come to his office in the first place, that motion was denied. And now having read an entire book about this trial, I feel like this was a major part of why Norris walked, was that the the prosecution asked the judge to charge, to change the jury instructions, and the judge said no. I think that may have been a big piece of the puzzle. In closing statements, the prosecution roundly accused all of the defense witnesses, including Norris, of perjury. Fair. Yeah. In the defense closing (laughs) argument, this is wild, uh, attorney Simpson for Norris's legal team cited the Bible because the four gospels differ somewhat in detail but tell the same story. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to make the joke that I wanted to make because I... (laughs) The defense 
also <laughs> mocked Chips for being a drunk. And the prosecution, in closing arguments, accused Norris's side of having Norris's two sons present in the courtroom to garner sympathy from the jury who had the power to send Norris to death. The prospect of the death penalty really hung heavy over this courtroom as the final moments of the trial ticked by in a, a flurry of accusations. The jury was expected to deliberate for a long time, and a lot of legal experts guessed that there would be a hung jury. But... As it turned out, the jury deliberated for only an hour and 14 minutes. Yeah, so despite the shenanigans, as we'll call them. Um, Many shenanigans. So after an hour and 14 minutes, the jury brought back a not guilty verdict. Also worth noting, uh, because you did mention that uh, Norris's sons had been in the audience. Also in the audience was Dexter Chips Jr., who was 14 years old and he watched the man who uh, possibly murdered his father walk away. Chip's son, um, Dexter Jr., was reported as crying in the back of the courtroom. He said to a reporter, I can stand it all right, but I am worrying about my mother. Well, as a, as a little tagline to this whole thing, um, Mrs. Chip's uh, went through civil court and attempted to sue Norris for damages over this and after it was years that she was trying to track him down in court but she was never successful i mean the, the thing that it seems it, it just seems to me like all of the descriptions that i've heard about chips it seems like he was just like a solid dude who was ride or die for his friends and was and really just had a drinking problem yeah and we it's come up several times in this trial but this is the age of mental health issues that were unless you were wealthy and could afford you didn't get help or you self-medicated so we don't know what could have been going on for mr chips where he had these anger issues and a drinking problem and he i i, I don't want to armchair diagnose so i'm going to use my use different terminology he he seemed to be a very mercurial person and to go through periods where he was very up and very with it and really happy with the world and periods where he seemed to be very depressed. And that could point to a couple different like modern diagnoses that, that might be made about him. Who knows? The other thing I'm thinking about is that this was during Prohibition. Mm -hmm. This was like, this was 1926 when this happened. If you were... Uh, an alcoholic then i mean would it would they have seen you as the same way it, it, like if somebody shot a drug user mm -hmm. today as it, like that's the question that i've got to i think that's definitely how it would have been seen the the defense spent a huge chunk of their time in court having many many witnesses come to talk about what a horrible drunk chips was I mean, they, they did try to make it seem like he was like one of the mayor's thugs, but actually, I mean, it just seems like that was that was very just an uncharitable depiction of him. Yeah, this this mm. whole thing is messy and shady and just does not make Norris look like a good person, regardless of the fact that he was not convicted. Let's go take up the offering because I want to come back and finally tackle that brain in the jar story. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Rachel. A few years ago, I stepped away from my religious background. I had a lot of anger and a lot to say about evangelicalism and all the shitty parts of it. So I started a podcast to work through it and to feel less alone. A year into it, I asked my cousin-in-law to join the journey. And I said, yes, I'm Molly, co-host to the show. Turns out we had a lot more in common than just being in the same family. We were both raised in evangelical house churches in the 90s and 2000s. Talk about culty. We were homeschooled, culty, (laughs) and we both left religion behind about eight years ago. So now we get together every other week and talk about the nitty gritty that happens when you leave religion. Everything from how to set healthy boundaries with religious family members, theology, hell, heaven, Paul, and how to recognize and heal from religious trauma. This podcast is our healing process, and we're hopeful that sharing our stories, other people's stories, and what we learn along the way may help others heal too. Religion leaves a mark on everyone it touches. Sometimes that mark isn't always positive. Cheers to Leaving is the perfect podcast for anyone who's questioning their faith or looking to connect with others who have been there. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So grab a drink and join us as we say, cheers to leaving. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break, and we are finally bringing you the goods, what you want to hear. So in episode one of our podcast, Sadie told a story, but in the original clip, you described it as a young man decided to leave the church and said threats against the pastor. And then a week later, he was killed in a car accident and Norris scooped up his brains from the floor or from the ground in a jar. And I also think that you might have, you thought it was in the 60s rather than the early 20th century. Right. So this would have just been the the details of the story being different. That's just the way I heard the story because it was passed on to me like a game of telephone. Uh, Jack Hiles would have heard it from J. Frank Norris, and then he would have preached it in a sermon and elaborated on it as Hiles tended to do. 
And then either my dad or another preacher would have heard it from Hiles and then maybe they preached it to somebody else. And, you know, 20 years later after Hiles told the story, 80 years after the story actually happened, I was hearing it for the first time. And along the line of this game of telephone, the details had gotten distorted. I thought it was in the 60s because I just didn't know when J. Frank Norris lived. So, but but the way that you told it in the first episode, that's that's more due to the way that you heard it, not you not remembering it properly. Right. No, that's that's the way that I heard it after literally, I guess, 70, 80 years of telephone. <laughs> and so this uh, this is a story that's kind of like a legendary. Is is this like a legendary story in the IFB? Is it yeah. like a, a a mythic? And and the other thing is, I may have heard it different ways from different sources. Because I know this was a story that my dad told in sermons, but it wouldn't surprise me if I heard it, like my youth pastor preach it in a sermon also. And he would have heard it from a different root source than my dad did. Like my dad would have heard it from Jack Hiles, who heard it from Norris. But my youth pastor might have heard it from somebody else at Hiles Anderson College who heard it from Jack Hiles, who heard it from Norris. And he might have had different details to the story than my dad did. Or I might have heard it at a Christian camp when somebody heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from Hiles, who heard it from Norris. And their details were different. So I don't know <laughs> which set of details like my dad's set or my youth pastor's set or some other preacher's set of details got stuck in my mind. Because <laughs> I heard this story so many times, I I have no clue. <laughs> whose version of it is the one that stuck. Fortunately, I was able to find the original claim uh, because I got a hold of this book, The J. Frank Norris That I Have Known for 34 Years by Louis Ensminger. And this was my dad's copy, which is really fun because it's falling apart and there are bookmarks and like sticky notes all through it. And, um, but I now that I have this story, there are actually... There are two different stories that are printed back to back in this book, and I can read you both of them. And there are claims that we can check in in both stories. So the first one is about the the meeting that was held, the Fort Worth town meeting of can we kick this guy out of town? The man who presided at the meeting when 165 banded themselves together to run Norris out of town This man was a powerful and influential man. He was the chairman of the Democratic Party of Texas. He lifted his glass of liquor and said to the crowd, let's stand and drink to the death of our enemy. Six days after that night, he and his, uh, substitute a word, he and his black chauffeur were driving to town and crossed the interurban. The two-story brick house still stands. There was not a curve in the then double track of the interurban between Dallas and Fort Worth. The motorman on the front end said, I saw the car moving slowly and thought surely it would stop, but it came onto the track. And that interurban coming 60 miles an hour hit that car amidship and smashed it to smithereens and the two interurbans plunged from the track and there were more than 60 people in both cars. Not one person on the interurban had a broken bone. The chauffeur was unscathed. But the insides and brains of this man who had drunk the toast to the death of Norris six days before, his brains were scattered for a distance of 100 feet on the track. He lay in state in the auditorium of the Chamber of Commerce, and great fear came upon every soul. The other, so the other page tells the story that I heard growing up. It would now be in order to tell the fate of the conspirators. 
take the district attorney who was a tool of the liquor interests. After the conspiracy trial had come to light, come to naught, and only a short time afterwards, this prosecuting attorney loaded his fine new Cadillac car with liquor, two women, and another man. They were going across the North Main Viaduct at terrific speed and ran headlong into an oncoming streetcar. This district attorney and the other three in the car were killed instantly and nobody was hurt on the streetcar only shaken up. There was a half-quart bottle of liquor broken and it was sitting straight up on the pavement and it had a lobe of brains in it. This bottle of liquor and brains was carried to Dr. Norris and he took it to the pulpit and preached a sermon on it the next Sunday night on the text, The wages of sin is death. Of course, it caused a great sensation. Norris was severely criticized. Some women fainted in the audience and some men did too. It scared me almost to death. So Ensiminger, so he saw the brains. Yes. Like the conspiracy trial, we're assuming that they are talking about the arson trials and the arson trials were over by 1914. So the size of First Baptist Church of Fort Worth would have been over a thousand people at that point. The main detail that I'm thinking, but well, the other thing that I'm thinking about is that the district, or, or that the the attorney in the um, in the murder trial did allege he didn't allege a conspiracy, but he alleged that literally everybody who was a defense witness was lying, which would come to like conspiracy after the fact mm -hmm. if we were thinking about it like like a conspiracy to hide the evidence or a conspiracy to lie about it. So, or when he says conspiracy trial, he could mean the murder trial in which all the Catholics conspired to try to get me out of town. Yes. So what this means is we have to check the district attorneys who were DA at the time of the arson trials, the district attorneys who were DA at the time of the murder trial, and the Democratic anybody who was ever a Democratic Party chair that still lived in Fort Worth around the years 1912 to 1914, because that's around the time they tried to have him run out of town. So that one's narrower and easier to check on. The, um, the district attorney one is a little bit harder, but actually it's not because I found some things. <laughs> so, I mean, this, the, the debunking of this story has, it's almost been like a holy grail for us ever since we started this podcast. Like I said, like the, the J. Frank Norris story appeared in our first episode. Actually, this fun fact. So the first two episodes of the show, we actually recorded twice because the first versions of those episodes were bad. Um, mm -hmm. And we had to re-record them. We to, had no idea. We had no, like we had what we were doing. I mean, look, I had to I went back and I listened to the first episode of the show to pull the clip from this and listening to it. I'm just like, I'm cringing so hard listening to it. <laughs> um, but like uh, i mean you were fine i'm just listening to myself on the show just like oh is that what i sounded like is that what i you know um and i guess i got better at editing and i got better at self-editing <laughs> since then <laughs> but um yeah a filter but this is a story we also that just started putting the really offensive stuff you say on i gave it all that's true um that helped well, I mean, we, we did like, but this story appeared in the first version of the first episode that we ever recorded of this show that no one ever heard. And it appeared in also like the episode 57 primer episode for new listeners that we did like two years ago. And it also, I think we talked, we talked about this story in one of my all time favorite episodes, which was Paul Sand. So like debunking this story, like now that we have the details for it, it's like, 
you know, I, we've just been buzzing all week to get to talk about this. Yeah. And I just, I never thought to try to look into it until I got a hold of this book by Entsmaker because the way that I heard the story, which is the way that I told it you know, previously on this podcast, there was no way to confirm who the victim would have been. It was just, you know, some guy who crossed J. Frank Norris. And as you've learned from these episodes, there were a lot of guys who crossed J. Frank Norris. So when I actually found the original claim and an additional claim that we can fact check, all of a sudden there are hard details. There's a range of years. There's a specific job title. And these are things that we can actually check. So this was pretty exciting. I think that the first question that we have to ask, which was also the first question that we had to ask in the Paul Sand story is... Is Nora saying that this is a 100% true thing that actually happened, or is this a sermon illustration? But with this being in his authorized biography here, I would say it's something that he's claiming absolutely happened. I, I would agree with you with that. I think with the Jack Hiles thing, there was maybe a little more gray area where you could have given him the benefit of the doubt, but I don't think that you can do that in this story. The other thing that's an important detail for me is that because it's Ensminger saying it and saying, I was certainly shaken when this happened. J. Frank Norris brought some amount of brains or something that looked like brains to the pulpit on a Sunday morning and said, this is brains in a jar. We know the sermon happened and we know that he brought the jar in. Whose brains it was, what brains it was, like this is, that's the question here. So I went and I tracked down a list of all of the Texas Democratic Party chairs from the year 1910 until 1930 from the Texas State Records website. Oh, that's that's good because that like fully covers the era that we're looking at because yes. 1910 is before the first arson trial and that's the first one from that starts in 1910 is probably the guy but that covers all the way till after the murder trial right and norris is just so vague with his details of um mm -hmm. he of, of like what specific trial it was regarding because i'm sure that he told this story years and years and years and years later and said oh it was one of, one of my trials i mean th this guy's got like a record longer than ricky from trailer park boys he's don't slander ricky like that so he can just say, oh, it was the guy from one of my trials. And then somebody's like, I looked up the trial. That guy's still alive. And he can be like, no, it was the other trial. But no, I, I tracked down a list of all of the, the Texas Democratic Party chairs from 1910 until 1930. So from 1910 until 1918, it was a man named Pat M. Neff. Uh, from 1918 until 1922, it was a man named Earl Bradford Mayfield. And from 1922 to 1932, it was a man named Fritz G. Lanham. Pat Neff went on to become the governor of Texas, and he was also in favor of prohibition, and he went on to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 1944 until 1946. So he was definitely not a Catholic who is Norris's mortal enemy. And this was also prior to Norris getting kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention, so he wouldn't have been like enemies with this guy at that time either. Interesting, because he kind of he kind of implies, I'm gonna read it from the book again. The man who presided at the meeting when 165 banded themselves together to run Norris out of town. This man was a powerful and influential man. He was chairman of the Democratic Party of Texas. Yes. So he implies that it was the current chair, like the way that it's written. He could be speaking about somebody who was a former or future chairman of the Democratic Party of Texas. 
Well, he wouldn't be a future it, Democratic it, it, Party of Texas right. because he was about to. <laughs> but it implies heavily that it was the guy who was the current chair. Does it not? Right. But if you squint and look at it sideways, which is what we have to do if we're trying to do this, then you can just be like, oh, no, it's the former chair. Yeah, I, you just misheard me. You just heard me wrong. And I, I looked it up. The meeting was held in early January of 1912. Okay, so it would have had to have been Neff, according to. But I'm gonna like. You're gonna look. We're gonna look at other options yeah, just to be thorough. Yeah, just in case he can be like, oh, I just misread, misremember the details or something. Because um, mm, that's what he would have said. I mean, that's what that's what got him off from murder. Mm-hmm. So Earl Mayfield. Uh, who was the chair from 1918 to 1922. In 1922, he was elected to the U.S. Senate, and he was also the first U.S. Senator to be a Klansman or to be known and outed oh, no. like openly as a Klansman, even though he publicly denied being a member. So he definitely wasn't Norris's enemy. He might have been at the KKK minstrel show that was at Norris's church, though, so you never know. Um not, mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, Lanham was also a sitting representative in the U.S. House of Representatives when he was made chairman, and he served eight terms and retired in 1946. So it couldn't have been him either. So clearly none of these men died in a Cadillac crash on Main Street in Fort Worth after bad-mouthing uh, J. Frank Norris and drinking to his early demise. Whoever the man was who made an enemy of Norris and was struck down in the automobile wreck on mainstream, it was not the chair of the Texas State Democratic Party. It's just a complete and utter fabrication. Like So, like, what happened here? Does this mean that there was a train crash on the track of the interurban train between Dallas and Fort Worth where a train ran into a car and Norris just claimed years after the fact, oh yeah, the person killed in that train crash was somebody who had it out for me. I guess either that or he could just say like years later, oh, remember that train crash a few years back when there might not have even been a train crash. Right, but trains crashing into cars when cars were brand new in Texas, that makes sense as a thing that might happen. The only thing that's like, to me, because you've seen the flyers from the meeting that they were going to have about running Norris out of town. So those flyers were real and that meeting actually happened. I think that meeting is real. Yeah, because otherwise I would have just said that this entire story about them having a meeting trying to run him out of town and the dude getting killed in the train crash is a fabrication as well because I can't trust any goddamn thing that this guy says. I have seen the like we have we have seen the evidence that the the from the flyers that that meeting was real and they said no women and no men under 21. I mean, but you we don't know who chaired the meeting. Like, we don't even know no. that's the, like, we don't even know who was there. It might have just been like three people showed up and they said, we really don't like Norris, but there's not enough of us to do anything about it. Or it might have all just been like Norris's people that showed up in protest to it, but we don't know. And they might have disrupted it and made it not happen. And then he might have made up a story later. Like, all we know is that a meeting happened and then Norris, I guess, made up a story later about what happened to the people that went to that meeting as like a scare tactic. Yeah. So I found the I found the passage from Menace in the Megachurch about that meeting. It is from page 30, end of chapter six, Menace in the Megachurch. Shortly after the new year began 
In January 1912, word was spread in certain quarters of the city that there was going to be a big meeting at City Hall on the topic of what to do about Jerry Frank Norris. About 200 men reportedly attended the meeting where they heard Mayor Davis defend the honoring memory of Winfield Scott. Along the way, Davis justified the activities of the city administration with heated, belligerent assertions against the pastor of First Baptist Church. Norris, having heard about the meeting, worked with the editor of the X-Ray to insert a stenographer into the crowd listening to Mayor Davis. The mayor's remarks were then published in the next edition of the periodical under the headline Liars. The city administration heard what had happened and got an injunction to suppress the paper. Only a few copies ever saw the light of day. Years later, Norris would tell the story over and over. I sent a court stenographer down and he took down every word of his speech. It was so hot that it was not permitted to go through the mail. J. Frank Norris publishing what the people said about him in a meeting with the... Did he, did he name the court stenographer that he sent down? No, he didn't. I just read the exact quote. No, he did not. <laughs> so J. Frank Norris probably just said, oh, I said to just court stenographer. Just wrote down what he and, thought the mayor was saying about him behind his back. Yeah, and just put it in his newspaper that he runs and that he can say whatever he wants. And this is bull****. This is, this is complete bull****. And then he says, and the guy that was at the meeting was killed in a car crash. And everybody clapped and they made me president for life. And that's why I'm so great. Let's look up Mayor Davis on the Texas State Historical Association. Cattleman, oil entrepreneur, and multi-term Democratic mayor of North Fort, North Fort Worth and Fort Worth, known for securing the creation of Lake Worth, was born uh, October 30th, 1867 in Neshoba County, Mississippi, blah, 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 lived until 1942. So it wasn't him, and he was never chair of the Texas State Democratic Party. Just right. But it's worth looking up in case it was like, in case the Democratic Party thing was a lie. So in the other story, the one with the actual brain in the jar, Norris specifies that this was the district attorney who was a tool of the liquor interests. So if the conspiracy trial is referencing Norris's arson trials, then this is a total lie because Tarrant County, Texas did not open an office of the district attorney until 1919 which is a full five years after Norris's conspiracy trials for arson fizzled out. I looked up the very first Tarrant County District Attorney, Jesse M. Brown, who served from 1919 until 1922. Jesse M. Brown died in Fort Worth in 1974. The second second District Attorney, Robert K. Hanger, who is mentioned all over this book, Menace in the Megachurch, because he's the one who prosecuted Norris for murder, served from... 1923 to 1927 and died at the age of 74 in 1969. So no, it was was not the district attorney. That is a lie because there was not a district attorney prior to 1919. There was a county attorney. No, I'm going to check out the county attorneys. I'm also going to check out the ADAs. So Georgie Hosey is called the assistant district attorney in the book Menace in the Megachurch, although that's also technically not correct because he couldn't have been the ADA because there wasn't a DA until 1919. Uh, Hosey would have actually been the assistant county attorney, but that does show us that people use the terms district attorney and county attorney interchangeably, even though they technically are not technically correct. But according to Menace in the Megachurch, Hosey, quote, emerged as the key prosecutor in the arson trial. So it's certainly, like, he certainly could be the person that's referred to here. They just misnamed as a district attorney, but the person who brought the conspiracy charges against Norris. Hosey 
later became a judge in Tarrant County and was briefly the judge for Norris's 1926 murder trial until they had to move the trial to Austin. That makes a sense why the prosecution would have wanted a change in venue, were they? <laughs> yeah, um, and Hosey lived until 1957, so he is also not the mysterious victim here. I also looked at A.J. Clenenden, who was a special prosecutor brought in by the prosecution for the arson and perjury trial. We both looked for Clenenden online, and there is not, like, he doesn't have a, a wiki page or a, a Texas State Historical Association page like most of these other people do. However, I was able to find record of Clenenden still actively working on cases in 1917, which does put us outside the specifications of this happening, quote, very shortly after the conspiracy trial. Uh, finally, I checked out John W. Baskin, who was the county attorney of Tarrant County at the time of uh, Norris's conspiracy, arson, and perjury trials, and he lived until 1928. 1928, so not 1914. Right, so the, the arson and perjury trials were... It wasn't the kind of thing where like, oh, it's over and done now because then there were additional charges brought and it was messy, uh, but the litigation was completed by 1914. So if we're looking at something that happened very shortly, uh, let's see. After the conspiracy trial had come to naught and only a short time afterwards, we're not looking at something that happened 14 years later, no. I mean, the, if we're talking gap theory, then 14 years is actually a thousand years um and right checkmate fundies um no this is looking <laughs> like a dead end right now um a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Because also, just like using common sense, I think that if the county prosecutor had died in a horrible, scandalous crash, there would have been a newspaper article about it, possibly in the newspaper that was owned by J. Frank Norris, 
that he published articles in, even when they weren't true. Like nobody published an article about how the county attorney died in a car crash when he hit a trolley. Right. So Norris took a real place or two real places, the track of the interurban train between Dallas and Fort Worth and the North Main Viaduct streetcar track and vague descriptions of real people like the chair of the Democratic Party of Texas and the district attorney and maybe real train crashes. Like it's totally possible that the streetcar hit a car full of drunk drivers at some point on that intersection. That's totally possible. It's totally possible that as cars were a new thing in Texas and people were learning how to drive, somebody drove over a train track and the train didn't stop and hit them. He took plausible circumstances, real people, real places, and made up a completely fake story. But there is one avenue that we have not used to debunk this, and this is the medical avenue. Um, because oh, fun. up until this point, we have ignored half of the question, which, and we just can't have that. So the question that we've been asking is, did any of these district attorneys or Democratic County or Democratic Party chairs die in a in a crash after speaking out against J. Frank Norris. The question, the other half of the question is, could a man's brains have fallen out from a crash with a trolley, ended up in a 16 ounce jar of liquor, and could J. Frank Norris have had them delivered to him, recognized them as brains, brought them to the church, and shown them to his congregation? And I assume this is where we get into like the really heavy body horror stuff. Yes, a TW. So I have a friend who is an ER doc at a university hospital in Philadelphia. She deals with a lot of gunshot wounds, car crash victims, stuff like that. So I asked her a few questions. The first was, how much force does it take to crack a human skull? Not that I have any doubt that crashing your Cadillac into a streetcar would crack your skull, but I figured I'd just have to ask to get the figures, how much force would it take to crack a human skull? She was horrified at the question and told me to leave her alone. So I did some quick Googling and I found an article about that episode of Game of Thrones when Pedro Pascal's head explodes. The article stated that a human skull can crack with as little as 73 newtons of force, which is 16 pounds. But in order to crush a skull, it would take about 5,400 newtons or 1,200 pounds of force. Armed with this information, I decided to calculate the force that would potentially be subjected to this man's skull. I looked up the weight of a streetcar. What was I saying about unnecessary levels of research? This is not unnecessary, Sadie. This is perfectly necessary. Um, I so I looked up the weight of a of like an average streetcar from 1912, and I found out that the streetcar weighs about 20 tons or about 40,000 pounds. I assumed that it would be traveling at around 60 miles per hour because that's the speed that was specified in one of the stories. And this gave me a total force of about 820,000 newtons, assuming that the collision happened over about three meters, which is the wheelbase of a Cadillac from that era. So the distance from the front axle to the rear axle is the wheelbase. That's also roughly the distance between the front of the car and where the victim would have been sitting in the back of the car. 820,000 newtons is more than enough uh, power to totally destroy the skull of a human. So 
you can check that box. However, I was worried about whether or not the human brain would survive the impact and still be recognizable. So I texted my friend again and asked her how much force it would take to fully liquefy a human brain. She told me to stop asking her gross questions like this, so I went to Google <laughs> again, and I learned that the human brain is 60% fat and 40% other stuff. I then went to the barbecuing subreddit and asked no. them what the fattiest cut of meat was and how it could survive an impact with a 20-ton trolley. From this, I learned two things. The first was that the fattiest cut of meat is the pork belly, but that this usually only has around 30% fat, nowhere close to the 60% fat content of a human brain. The second is that very few, if any people, have tried throwing a pork belly at a moving trolley. So I went to YouTube and I found a video of that guy that has the hydraulic press um, I found a video of him squishing meat with it. Um, Ew. Yeah, and so none of the cuts of meat were close to the 60% fat of a human brain. So I figure that because the cuts of meat are more protein and less fatty, that they'll, they're more likely to survive. So I figure that like if a 30% fat pork belly can't survive like the, the 820,000 newtons of force, then a 60% fat human brain won't survive either. Unfortunately, the meat completely liquidated before it even got close to 820,000 newtons. So, like, even like e even the meat with bones in it so that didn't like oh. yeah. Um so like if okay, you're worried I take about back like this Okay, cuz now I want to see this. <laughs> like if you're thinking about like well maybe the skull took some of the impact. Like I watched ones where it had meat with bones in it too and they didn't really survive any better than that. So it's also kind of like, I mean, the, and, and the skull can only absorb like 5,400 newtons, not 800,000. So Thanks. at this point, I figured that straight up crushing the skull and like smushing the brains out, but like them still being recognizable, like that hypothesis seems kind of baloney. Um, Good to know. <laughs> in exploring other hypotheses, I watched several videos of people putting rubber bands around watermelons until they exploded to see if that lended anything <laughs> to my investigation, but it really didn't. So it wasn't until... <laughs> I, was, I will be taking no God, <laughs> I will be taking no further criticism for you from you on the way that I choose to use my research hours at work. <laughs> you got you listened to me talking about reading Charles Chenequi's book and then also reading Henrietta Caracolio's book. I also watched like 40 hours of Andrew Tate videos at one point, which was just like Okay. But this empowered you to watch videos of watermelons exploding and call it research. <laughs> I've created a monster. This is where, okay, this is where I think I've really cracked it. No pun intended, actually pun intended. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until I saw that log truck scene from Final Destination on TV at a bar where I was playing Quizzo that I was basically given another brainwave. So I got the idea to look into vehicle crash safety. As we know, cars today are much safer than they were 100 years ago. Cars today have seatbelts, they have airbags, they have crumple zones, they have automatic braking. Cars 100 years ago were basically just rolling boxes with a motor in them. So I thought, what if this man's head got sliced off or like sliced in half? And so I googled Cadillac decapitation, but all I came up with was like this really brutal rockabilly death metal band. They're kind of good. You should check them out. Um, but then I did some <laughs> deeper research and I found that the Cadillac V63, which was the Cadillac that was produced around this time, was one of the first cars to have laminated safety glass, meaning that this car's windshield was made of two panes of glass that were glued together so that if they shattered, the pieces would stick together rather than separating and slicing the occupants to pieces. This 
significantly reduced the risk of decapitation, but it didn't entirely eliminate it. Nevertheless, finding out this fact kind of dropped the likelihood of the decapitation slash head slicing open theory to be maybe less likely. So finally, I got to the last part of the story, which is where J. Frank Norris or, or somebody walking by the scene sees the brains in the jar, puts them or, and, and picks them up and and takes them to J. Frank Norris. But this person basically saw the brains sitting in a half quart liquor bottle, a 16 ounce liquor bottle, which is roughly about this. That, that's about a pint. 16 ounces is a pint. Pint is a half quart, right? Yeah. Um, I think so. And as somebody saw them and brought them into church, brought them to J. Frank Norris. So as I stated previously, the human brain is 60% fat and it's mostly triglycerides. So I looked up whether or not alcohol dissolves triglycerides and I found out that very high proof alcohol will in fact dissolve triglycerides if given enough time. I personally believe that this alcohol was probably very high proof for a couple of reasons. First is that during this time, spirits were not generally standardized to a 40% alcohol by volume, also known as 80 proof. Second, the alcohol that the passerby saw the brain sitting in was likely clear alcohol. So he would not, because otherwise, if it was like whiskey or if it was like a dark spirit of some sort or like rum, like spiced rum, then he would not have been able to see the brain sitting it in it. This leads me to believe that the alcohol was likely moonshine that was made from corn, which also means that there is a high possibility that there was some methanol present in the alcohol, which is an even stronger solvent than the ethanol that is found in alcohol that we drink. Additionally, methanol is known to cause blindness, adding to the likelihood that it could have been a contributing factor to the collision with the trolley that took these poor people's lives. If this crash occurred Whoa. on a Saturday, yeah, you you know what I'm talking about. You're um you you are descendant of yeah. That's I am a descendant of rednecks, but I know what happens if you don't take the devil's cut. If there was a brain in a okay, yeah. So I have okay, thoughts so on this, but if there if there was a brain in a broken pint bottle and a pint bottle of alcohol is just not that big. Well, I'm thinking like a mason jar is my thought. Like a mason jar is is more than a pint. Well, they make pint mason jars. Like the the jelly and jam that I'm making is going into half pint jars, which is roughly a cup of jam or jelly depending on how high you fill it. Right. And so what they're th what the story says, the story says it's just a lobe of brain. It's not the whole brain. It's like a lobe. Right of brain how how long would the brain be able to sit in the jar before it gets dissolved by the alcohol that's my first question and then i have a second question i think if the crash occurred on a saturday night and then the brains were and, and they were taken to norris that evening and then norris gave the sermon on sunday i think they'd still be recognizable but if, if it was like on a monday or a tuesday and they put the brains in the jar like maybe it would have been a little bit less recognizable that's kind of my thought what's what's okay. your second question is because my second question is is there any way that he's got the brains in the jar without any alcohol in the jar but that would have meant that he had to have some kind of preservative in there and yeah like pectin what? <laughs> pectin is not a preservative isn't that the stuff pectin that you put in the the jam to make it in, yeah it's not a preservative it's a it's a naturally occurring chemical found in fruit that makes your jelly gel okay well maybe it's a nat maybe if you put it in brains and it makes the brains jellier and and um <laughs> no that's not how pectin works coffee 
I don't know. You're, you're pectin, the one who knows about. Pectin uh, is a chemical that works like when there is acid and there is sugar. It makes the acid and the sugar work together to make gel. Okay. It's like a bridge between like the way I understand if I'm not completely off kilter here. Don't no, come don't. at us if you're a chemist and you're like. No, actually do come at us. If you can explain to me the details of how pectin works, I would love to know because I have not done more than like a cursory Google a long time ago. Okay. So my, my second, my second question, my third question, because if, if there was no preservative friends, I am not intoxicated as the victims of this streetcar hypothetical streetcar crash were. I'm just, I'm tired. And I had my first pumpkin spice latte today. And that's got like a lot of sugar. Yes, girl. <laughs> so if there, if there wasn't any alcohol in the broken pint jar to preserve the brain, he would have had to get some formaldehyde, which was one of our questions about this story in the very first episode of this podcast is where did he get the formaldehyde? So that does clear things up and also not clear them up at all. Well, if we're talking about the, the, what we were asking in the first uh, episode, I recall that I said that it would have been suspicious if this were in the 20s that this guy was going around with jars because I thought that it maybe he was like a bootlegger on the side, which is very funny that I would say that J. Frank Norris is a bootlegger on the side. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely, um, we've learned a lot about him through this episode. Not a bootlegger. Many things, no. but not a bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> My last question is, how statistically likely is it that a glass jar of alcohol would be thrown from the car and that the person's skull would be crushed and their brain would be thrown from the car and the brain would land inside the glass, which is sitting perfectly, has been broken open, but has then rolled to an upright position so that the brain can then land in it. I was wondering the same thing, because I was wondering if the man's skull had been crushed by the trolley, then it certainly would have just like powderized the 16 ounce jar. I, I had this question too. So I asked the all-knowing, chat gpt is oh, it possible to throw a 16 ounce glass jar from a moving vehicle without the lid without the lid on without spilling the liquid or breaking the jar because the jar would have had to land and not like it would have had to land face up and not break on landing right not shatter not when shatter. it landed with the bottom of the jar on the ground right because what i'm thinking is that either the lid was off or that the um or that it broke during the initial impact with the trolley, but that it didn't break when it hit the ground. And that's what I'm basically trying to get out here. And this is the response that I was given. Throwing a glass jar, even a well-sealed one from a moving vehicle without spilling the liquid or breaking the jar is highly unlikely. In general, it is not advisable to attempt to throw a glass jar from a moving vehicle as it poses safety risks to both you and others on the road. If you need to transport a fragile or liquid-filled item, it's best to use appropriate packaging and secure it properly to prevent spills or damage. And as we well, all know... Thanks, ChatGPT. Thanks, ChatGPT. It's never wrong, um, and it never gets anything wrong, and the AI is coming for our jobs, so I can safely say that this story has been fully debunked. I also, like, while you were reading that, I, I thought to myself, okay, let's say that bottle is accurate and it was a 16 ounce, like, glass beer bottle or, like, wine, like a 16 ounce wine bottle, like, shaped. 
receptacle. So what happens in the crash is the neck of the bottle is broken off without shattering the base of the bottle, which is then thrown from the moving vehicle and lands perfectly sitting up without shattering. And then a piece of brain lands in it. And I was wondering, what if we did an experiment? What if we had, like, I have, I have an almost empty wine bottle that given the week I've had, I can make empty for you real quick. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'll get listeners. I am, I am safe and okay. I've had a hell of a week. I'll, I'll tell you about it when I feel like I'm able to talk about it without getting upset. What do we like better? Sleep deprivation, Sadie, or wine mom, Sadie? Oh, Lord. Uh, You don't want both together. (laughs) I mean, our listeners probably do. Both together is just snoozing. That's just snoozing, Sadie. (laughs) So, okay. I have like a a mostly, I have have an empty wine bottle, effectively. And let's say we try to break the neck off by, I don't know, slamming it against the side of something. Do you have like a saw? You could like saw it off. To like get the yeah I have um, a I have a saw yeah to get like the the neck like the open part of it yeah so we we break but I think we need to break it because then that's true to the forces that the bottle would have experienced because like as you might know if you drop a cup once and it doesn't break you've still made it weaker and more likely to break the next time that you drop it hmm. so I think we have to break the neck off to make it a good experiment but we break the neck off and then. We're going to go up to like, a, maybe not even up to the second story of anything, maybe just like on a high step ladder to replicate it being thrown from the vehicle. And we're going to throw the wine bottle and try to get it to land upright on the ground without breaking. This sounds extremely then messy. This is We're going to stand on the step ladder with like ground up pieces of pork belly and try to throw the pork belly into the wine bottle from, I don't know, let's say 15 feet away. Do you think we could even do that on purpose if we wanted to do it? This is sounding like the worst carnival game I've ever <laughs> I just like, I know this sounds, I know this sounds a little bit nuts, but I don't think like, I, I think this is completely not something that we could even replicate on purpose. What I'm thinking is that he, he was in the, the car with four, with three other people. Right, so there are there are extra brains. There's four times the amount of brains that we're thinking about for one person. Also, I'm thinking about how like this impact is a very forceful impact. If there there's like more than enough energy going into the car to smash one person's skull, then there's like ample energy to totally like demolish four people's skulls. So what I'm imagining is more of just like a mist mm. of brains. Like like a like a, a guts brains explosion kind of dealio, and so sure. like it, I mean it, I, what I'm imagining is like is if gross. you hold if you like hold out your cup during a rainstorm, oh, you're no. gonna get some water in it. God, I mean, nobody is still listening to this podcast. This is so disgusting. <laughs> no, okay. Here's I've another never thought. Been, like, <laughs> I'm so glad we did not do this when we first started recording the podcast because I was <laughs> pregnant at the time and I literally used to record episodes with a trash can beside me you know, just in case. <laughs> and I'm barely hanging in there right now. No, what we need to do 
is I, I'm like I'm I'm. What this we is need actually to do is more when you serious. Come, when you come over next week, we need to be throwing like ground beef and pork belly into bottles. Is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Jonathan could just like chill in the living room and talk about how weird we are. <laughs> what I think, you know, how when Christopher Nolan was making Interstellar, they had to like invent a computer to simulate what a black hole would look like. Okay. What I'm thinking is get christopher nolan to make a computer you know what i'm saying that, that will like simulate this crash and uh. so so like we get like a computer model of the cadillac and then we get like a computer model of the four people in them with like their brains extra like squishily you know liquidy so like right then we like get like a computer mo- like we figure out where in the it, where in the vehicle the bottle is and like how the crash would have to impact this is a perfect opportunity to test out the quality of machine learning and artificial intelligence and see if we can just simulate it a bunch of different ways and get the result that we want right like if we run well if we run this simulation with a random outcome a thousand times how many times does it take for us to get a broken bottle with a brain piece of brain in it yes and we might have to tweak it a little bit. We might have to tweak like the weight of the train car one way or the other. I just want to see if this is possible. Because there are people on the train, there are people in the car. Okay, here's here's the thing though. This is where I'm actually going to get theological. Go for it. When you look at the details of this crash, once you once you dig like we've dug and then make dumb jokes with your best friend for 20 minutes after doing actual research, um, what the conclusion that you come to is that this is incredibly unlikely like minus all the stuff about it didn't happen because the district attorneys all lived the the detail about there was this crash a head-on crash with a streetcar and a broken bottle was upright on the pavement with brains in it you realize that that detail is so unlikely j frank norris isn't he is claiming that this really happened but that's not the main point that he's making. The main point that he's making is God is protecting me and God is taking out the people who have it out for me. And that is the same main point of this story that I told you about when I told you this story for the first time, even though I had almost every detail wrong because of the way that I had heard it. The point is, and has always been, that this was a supernatural act that this was punishment of God on somebody who crossed J. Frank Norris and got in the way of his purpose to be the greatest fundamentalist preacher who was against liquor and stood up for all the right things. It He is claiming that God did this and God gave him the brains in a broken bottle so that he could take them in front of his church and make his point and be, his, be a showman. That's interesting. And I think maybe i don't know do you have a hypothesis on on what actually happened here because i think i do yeah i think that j frank norris bought like pig or cow or sheep brain from the butcher and then put it in the jar and brought it to church for shock value and then he also probably acted with the assumption that his congregation only reads the newspaper that he's the one publishing so it doesn't matter if he's lying or tell the truth because people are going to believe it anyway the other thing is i'm like the story of the brain in the jar 
so long outlived the circumstances of the story itself, like you were saying, that the names of the people who were allegedly involved, the details of their disagreements, their de- the disagreements with Norris, the implausibility of the details of their deaths were all lost to time. But the story of God striking down anyone who sinned or worked against the pastor on earth lived more than a hundred years after Norris told it from the pulpit for the first time. Yeah. I I think what actually happened here is a car smashed into a streetcar in Fort Worth, Texas, sometime after one of Norris's many run-ins with the law. And Norris saw a golden opportunity and got a hold of a broken bottle and a piece of anything. It could have been a piece of leftover steak from his Sunday dinner the week before. You know, it could have been anything. He could have told people anything was a little chunk of brains and they would have listened. And he took that little chunk of whatever. Um, Or, you know, like you said, he could have gone to the butcher and bought an actual brain if he really wanted to be realistic. He put it in he found a broken bottle in an alley somewhere. He put the brain in the bottle. He took it to church and made up the idea that the person who was in the crash was somebody who had been after him. Because just like Jack Hiles, when he told the Paul Stan story, there was no way he could have anticipated the advent of the internet, the ability to actually fact check these claims. And people would have known, word would have gotten around town that there was a streetcar crash. I think, I think that's how he did it. I want to I want to end this episode with a comparison that we've been making throughout the episode, which is J. Frank Norris to Brittany Dawn. I started working on this episode and I thought, oh, it's interesting. We have episodes, we have three episodes about two different Texans back to back, huh? And I didn't think any more of it. But the more we researched Norris and built out these two episodes, the more I found that they had in common. They're both from the Fort Worth area. They both have been rumored to cheat on spouses. They've both been accused of grifting by raising money for a particular cause and then embezzling it for themselves. They're both kind of clothes horses, fashionable or try to be fashionable, and they both play parts or roles to benefit themselves. Norris could be a country bumpkin, hello, fellow Southern Baptists, uh, just a regular guy pastor here, or he could be a classy city preacher and honored up and comer in the Southern Baptist convention when it came around convention time. Brittany Dawn plays Christian influencer or fitness buff or eating disorder expert or horse girl or aesthetic queen, how, whatever suits her and her purposes. But there's a bigger similarity that I think is really important to explore. And that's how both Norris and Nelson seem to go from crisis to crisis. Norris was credibly accused of burning his own church to the ground, credibly accused of setting fire to the house where his family was sleeping in order to make it look like he was being attacked by powerful forces of vice and evil. And it was proven that he himself sent his church member threatening letters and tried to make it look like they were coming from someone outside the community. Brittany Dawn cries on YouTube about the haters and being canceled. She scammed a lot of people with her fitness plans, and then she got into the business of rescuing rescuing houseless people and scammed through that, and then she jumped into a human trafficking ministry that is most likely a scam, and then she became an embattled, hopeful foster parent who is martyring herself to care for newborns that she wouldn't be able to raise herself. And, and all of this happened, like the foster parent happened almost overnight to garner sympathy as she was being sued by the state for her shady business practices. What I'm saying is both of these people live in crises of their own creation 
and then they turn right around and successfully monetize these crises to support themselves and their future crypts. Both of these people gained a following by portraying themselves to be on the right team, I'm on God's team, and by inviting others to join them in their courageous crusade. However, for the crusade to be courageous so that it would attract followers, there had to be villains. And in both of these people's stories, they created the villains too. In fundamentalism, in evangelicalism, time is a closed loop. The same patterns play out over and over in a way that almost feels comical. Raised by an alcoholic father, saved by a revivalist, called to pre preach in a crisis, railed against alcohol and vice, got ousted from the denomination for being too bold against the powers that be. It's a classic fundy story, and many more people than just Hiles or Norris have used versions of it. There are other classic fundy stories. A youth pastor led astray by a tempting teenager, seduced by a tool of Satan, now reformed and ready to preach a heart-stirring message about grace. Or a former drug addict, Hell's Angels member, Grand Druid priest, Satanist, Catholic priest, or what have you, now I'm here to tell you about how I've been changed by Jesus and you can donate to my new rehab center opening soon. I just need $100,000 to build this rehab center for other former drug addicts or other former priests or other former Satanists. The fundamentalist narratives that repeat over and over repeat because they are effective. Yes, sometimes it's a simple case of plagiarism, but I think it goes deeper than that because I think it's an embellishment of truth to gain an audience because it has become obvious that certain tropes and certain patterns and certain storylines attract an audience. And I'm totally supportive of laughing over the repetitiveness of it all, but I also think it's something worth noticing because chances are sooner or later you're going to run into somebody in your own life who is constantly living in crises of their own making, monetizing those crises to gain money, gain followers, gain influence, whatever it is that they're after. It's worth really digging into what those patterns are because I think Everybody goes through periods in their life where they have a lot of crises going on at any given time. But it, so it's not just, oh, if somebody has a lot going on in their life, we demonize them and we assume that they're a scammer and a grifter. It's learn the patterns that this type of people use. Learn the frequency with which the crises occur. Like there are, there are people with, with Brittany Dawn, it's like, a, it's like on a schedule. Every few years, it's you can just feel the next shift, the next branding shift coming. You can just feel the next crisis coming. And people knew that something was she was about to brand shift again. And then she announced that she was going to become a foster parent. And now she is using that to brand as, as branding. And people knew that something was coming because it was on schedule for her. So I'm, I certainly I don't want to come off, off as, as if I'm saying, oh, if somebody has a lot going on right now through no fault of their own, then they're a scammer and a grifter. But I think that learning these patterns can really teach us something about not only fundamentalist scammers, fundamentalist grifters, um, but but all sorts of different all sorts of different people that we may encounter in our lives. Well, you know, I was thinking about this. I was talking to my dad and a lot of times when I have a conversation with my dad, he'll be like, did you see what X, I don't know, like either Trump or some 
I guess the thing that happened last week was there there was like a Republican debate and he's like, did you see the thing that X person said at the debate? And I'm like, no, because I didn't watch it. And he's like, I can't believe that all these people believe this thing that this person said. It's horrible. It's like um, looking at stories like this, uh, at like stories like J. Frank Norris, I've come to realize that it's like always been this way, that there've all, that there's always been like a certain chunk of the population that for lack of a better word are just absolute marks for the biggest scammers and the biggest con men and the biggest grifters. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people in the world that are either marks or con men. And it seems like the con men always find their marks because they go out and they figure out how to look for them and they figure out how to find them. And then they get them all together. That's that's sort of my thought on this is that it's always been like this and there have always been people who have just been sort of looking for somebody like this to to kind of just yeah no i think it's something about human nature because this clearly goes outside of fundamentalism or even evangelicalism yes that there oh, clearly. are there are people who behave like norris like Brittany dawn and there are people who will eat it up and believe them and follow them everywhere and it's it's just i think it's a an extra shame when the person that is doing that is preying on people who are vulnerable especially in norris's time people who are poor people who are religious people who are hurt by alcoholism in their family or in their community in norris's day people who are living through the great depression for goodness sake it's 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 shameful and bad for a person to be a grifter, a scammer in any community. But it hurts my feelings extra when it's within the world of religion because it is it is like a double ethical violation. But there will always be people like Brittany Dawn, like J. Frank Norris, who are more than willing to commit that ethical violation to get themselves where they want to be. Next week. We are going to talk about Jill Duggar's book, Counting the Cost. Uh, if you're listening to this episode on release day, that means that it is the 10th of September, which means that this book comes out in two days. Um, I'm going to be flying back to Portland. I mean, I'm going to be flying back to Philadelphia overnight on a red eye, and I've got the download set to download that book at midnight so i'm going to be reading that on my flight back and you will hear what we think of this book on monday uh this is going to be really exciting i'm pumped for this sadie are you pumped for this i'm not as optimistic as i was previously but hopefully that just means i get a a fun surprise (laughs) yeah i think this one's going to be a tell-all you think this is going to be a tell-all or not i want it to be but i'm just All the optimism has been sucked out of me by life right at this exact moment in time. (laughs) But hey, maybe this will be the pick me up that I need. If you uh, want to hear this episode, if you want to hear next week's episode um, on a day or two early, then you could subscribe to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. There's also going to be an extended and uncensored and ad-free version of today's episode with some bonus fun stories that you didn't hear in the regular one. And you can check that out also on our Patreon by subscribing. You can join our subreddit and our Facebook group. Both of those are called Eden Exodus. You can 
go and follow us on social media. The podcast on Facebook and Instagram and threads is at Leaving Eden Podcast. Sadie, you want to plug your social media? Sure, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah.